Uh, Let's turn, though, to to Revelation 2 and verse 12, the letter to the church in Pergamum. So, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one who knows, that, but no one knows except the one who receives it. I grew up uh, in the kind of school that, that still had chapel every morning, sang hymns uh, every day. It wasn't a particularly Christian school. Uh, but we sort of worked through the, the, the English hymn book, as it were. Uh, here's one that I remember. It had a particularly kind of spooky tune. We don't sing it here. Here's one that I remember. Christian, dost thou see them on the holy ground? How the powers of darkness prowl and prowl around. Christian, up and smite them. Means whack them, children. Christian, up and smite them, counting gain but loss in the strength that comes from the Holy Cross. What do you make of that as a song? What do you think if Ben and Becca led us in that uh, next Sunday? Do you see how the forces of darkness prowl and prowl around? Christian, up and whack them, smite them, strike them. We don't sing many military type hymns, do we? Now, you may not know that one, but perhaps you know some of the other kind of old classics. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Or soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armour on, strong in the strength that he provides. The tendency, I think, is to think they're a bit jingoistic, a bit old-fashioned, a bit politically incorrect. I would rather turn and sing more inclusive songs, more loving songs. But there's something about them, whatever you make of the particular examples I've just quoted, there's something about them that was right in that they were gearing up the church to a warfare mindset. Uh, If you've ever children at school or the rest of us, we came through school, it's almost certain you studied World War II. Her mum was a history teacher, and one of the things that made her despair was the fact that it was almost, it felt like nowadays you could teach almost nothing but World War II. You might not know anything about the Tudors or Stuarts or the Civil War or anything, but World War II was the big one. And one of the extraordinary things in World War II, of course, was that the whole country moved to a warfare mindset. It wasn't just the soldiers sent abroad to fight, the sailors on the ships, the pilots in the air. The whole country was thinking, well, thinking like an army. And Revelation as a book, I think, is intended to, to wake us up. And make us realise that all of life, ultimately, is a war. If we were to read through the whole book, we'd see these extraordinary things going on. Dragons 
rising from the sea, strange beasts emerging from the land with, with many heads and strange crowns. Uh, we'd see Jesus riding in on a white horse bearing this huge sword. Dragons, monsters, trumpets, angels, bowls being poured out, the four horsemen of the apocalypse as they've come to be known. It could all seem a bit fantastic, a bit strange. And it is a bit strange in one sense. And that's where these letters we're looking at to start the book of Revelation really come in. Like this letter to Pergamum, a city in what we now call Turkey. That they help us to understand that for all the weird imagery of Revelation, that the warfare mindset is right because the warfare is fought out in the arena of the local church. It is because you will not, I'm confident to say to you, you will never see a three-headed monster emerging from the sea. You will never see a sort of strange land beast with many, many crowns. You'll never see four angels galloping across the skies with strange names written on them. Because of that, the danger is we go to sleep. And so these letters let us know that actually that warfare is real, but it's not real in the sense of we're expecting real monsters, real horses galloping across the sky and all that. It's real in that we have an enemy who is trying to destroy the church. Perhaps you've seen the, the Narnia films. Have you ever seen the Narnia films? The Land, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I, I remember going to see one of the friend who's a Christian. He's now a missionary, actually, uh, out in Madagascar. And as we came out, the, 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 Lord, the, not the Lord of the Rings, totally different book. The Land, the Witch, and the Wardrobe ends with this amazing battle scene. There's centaurs galloping down the hills. And uh, you know, it's all very impressive. And he came out, and, and it's, a, it's, it's a picture of the Christian life. And he came out and said the Christian life would be much easier if the enemies were that obvious. And if fighting was that exciting. Because in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the baddies are obvious. They're witches and minotaurs and goblins and all the rest of it. But actually, we are called to fight in very ordinary seeming ways. And actually, in what can look very unheroic ways. Perhaps you fancy that if there was, you know, there was a war, you'd be the brave one who went over the top and took down the enemy. But actually, the way Jesus calls us to fight in this letter to Pergamum... It'll never look that heroic, at least to the world. There is a war. Uh, We see that in verse 13. Jesus says to to, to the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Then he goes on to commend them for holding fast. We'll come back to that. Staying strong. But look how verse 13 ends. Antipas, my faithful witness, was killed among you where Satan dwells. The verse begins and ends with a reference to Satan living, indeed ruling, in Pergamum. Now, Pergamon wasn't, it's not literally the home of Satan like his address. If you want to write him a letter, he sort of lived in Pergamon. But rather, Paul is saying, sorry, Paul, John is saying that Satan dominates the city you live in. We don't quite know what the reference is in terms of Satan's throne. Some people think it's uh, due to the fact that in Pergamon there was a big mountain behind with lots of altars to other gods on, and one particularly tall one at the top of the mountain to Zeus, which kind of looked like a throne. Perhaps that's a reference. Others think it's because per- Pergamon was a city in the Roman Empire that was particularly dedicated to the idea that, that the Roman emperor was himself a god. And therefore, to deny that the emperor was god or to refuse to offer him sacrifices, religious worship, was particularly dangerous. I still others think it's because one of the major gods of the city was a guy called Asclepius, Roman god Asclepius, 
who was actually the god of healing and whose symbol was a, a snake wound around a staff. It's actually probably a very similar symbol uh, that we use today to represent uh, medicine. But whatever's going on, that the point is that there are, is a spiritual force at work in the city trying to destroy the church. Whatever the particular reference to Satan's throne, there is a battle, there is an enemy, and he wants the church destroyed. And those of you who've been around a while know that I am no scientist whatsoever, so I'm always very hesitant using any kind of scientific illustration or speaking of anything scientific at all, frankly. Uh, But I read this week, I read this week, that we see with our eyes one ten trillionth of the electromagnetic spectrum. I don't really understand what that means, if I'm absolutely honest. But I do know it means this, that there is loads of stuff out there, loads of waves and all the rest of it, that we can't see. That the band of which we can see with the human eye is incredibly narrow. And Jesus, through John, in this letter to the church in Pergamum, is saying, just just realize, although what you might see are imperial troops enforcing obedience to emperor worship, behind them, as it were, is the real enemy, Satan. Although what you might see is a bunch of very amiable people going off to offer sacrifices to Asclepius or Zeus or Behind them is a very evil enemy, Satan. In other words, don't just trust your eyes. Let me show you the whole spectrum, the wider spectrum, Jesus says, uh, to the church. And therefore, just for those of you who are perhaps new to the Christian faith or still have questions about it, let me just suggest to you that, that one of the... One of the ways of understanding the world that is bred into us, at least in the UK, I can only speak for the UK, but bred into us into the UK from our, really from day one, is that the only way to know if something is true or not is if you can find it with the tools of science. Essentially, it's the, you know, the five senses, but expanded to use technology. If you can't see it, taste it, touch it, hear it, smell it, either using just yourself or using the clever tools that, that various uh, folk have invented over the years, then it doesn't exist. But why? What would you think if you went to the doctor saying, look, I, I'm feeling pretty rough. I think there's something wrong with me. I've got, I think I've got some sort of virus illness. And he said, well, no worries. Picked up a metal detector, sort of scanned your body a little bit and said, nope, nothing went ping. You must be fine. What would you think if at airport security, you saw someone sort of packing some white powder into a bag, hiding it at the bottom of their suitcase and trying to drag it through security? And you sort of nudge the, the customs officer and say, look, I think, I think they're smuggling drugs. And again, the, the airport security officer said, well, let me get my metal detector out, scan the bag. Nope, nothing went ping. What are you doing? You can't find drugs with a metal detector. You can't, you can't diagnose diseases with a metal detector. You can't use the wrong tool and expect to get the right results. Why should it be that it's only things that we can see with our eyes, which we know now can't even see that much, Why should we restrict what we believe to be true and existing to what we can discover? Jesus certainly says to this church, open your eyes. There is a battle. Satan is at war. And the war is on two fronts. These are the two things we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. The two fronts of the war. 
Um, Firstly, in verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, well done for standing up to the open attack. Well done for standing up to the open attack. This is the, the classic war, if you like. When we think of war, we think of one army charging another. It's all out battle. Swords drawn, lances lowered, machine guns poised, whatever it may be. It is just a fight. And that is going on in Pergamum. Verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. There is pressure on the Christians in Pergamum just to give up, or at the very least to compromise. In the days when John was writing, no one would have minded if Jesus had one room in your house, one corner of your heart, as long as he sat alongside the emperor and Asclepius and Zeus. And it's when you started saying, no, no, I will live for Jesus alone, and therefore I will not bow to any other God, that's when you got in trouble. No one minded if you said you loved Jesus, that he was going to forgive your sins and take you to heaven. Oh, that's lovely. Good for you. But when you said, therefore, I am not going to engage in the kind of things you want me to engage in, well, the fury of the the town fell upon you. For some, like Antipas, it obviously cost him his life. We know nothing about him. We don't know his story. But clearly, holding fast to Jesus... And holding fast to the faith that Jesus entrusted to us, the gospel in other words, cost him his life. Just notice, by the way, there are two things there in verse 13, aren't there? You hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. The first bit, you you hold fast my name. Yes, I'm with Jesus. The church in Pergamon were happy to say that. But also they held fast my faith. I think that there is, 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 is shorthand for the faith that describes me, if you like. In other words, the gospel message. And so why is that two things, not one? Well, it's two things because sometimes that there are those who are happy to keep saying they trust Jesus, keep holding on to the name of Jesus, but totally change the message that Jesus taught. Change the gospel, in other words. You can buy T-shirts online that are atheists for Jesus that Richard Dawkins sells. It's actually quite hard to find anyone who has bad words to say about Jesus. Plenty of bad words about Christianity. But very hard to to, to find someone who says, no, Jesus was just a bad guy. But you will find millions of people outside the church and inside the church, sadly, who do not like the gospel message that Jesus taught. When Jesus taught that he had to lay down his life for sin. Suddenly the hackles rise. What do you mean I'm a sinner? What do you, need? I need, what do you mean I, I need forgiveness? What do you mean I need to repent and turn my life around to follow Jesus? What do you mean I'm not good enough on my own? What do you mean my gods aren't also okay? It is the message as well as the man that the church in Pergamum held to and therefore were persecuted. No one will mind if you say you love Jesus or something like that. They might think you're a bit daft, a bit silly, a bit odd. Why do you love an, an invisible person? Why do you love a fictitious character from history? Whatever the abuse might be, no one really minds. You start saying, and Jesus is the only way to God, and you need to believe in him too, suddenly the temperature will rise. We know it's risen around the world, don't we? We know of brothers and sisters in other countries who face exactly what Antipas faced. 
that they, they do end up having to lay down their lives. We know for some it means imprisonment, torture, separation from family. And that's why, by the way, we try and support um, the, the Barnabas Fund, the Barnabas Trust. Um, they work with persecuted Christians around the world. We know we're incredibly blessed here in England in that that kind of level of persecution hasn't, well, it hasn't arrived yet. And therefore, it's important that we stand with our brothers and sisters, our antipasses uh, elsewhere. But I suspect, uh, I suspect the temperature is also rising in the UK. I was hearing just this week uh, of a school, a Christian school, and it was inspected. Uh, and it was told that it, that it simply wasn't doing a good enough job teaching the children that same-sex marriages were a healthy way of life. And the school said, well, we're a Christian school and we respect everyone, we accept everybody, uh, we welcome everybody. But we can't teach that. So the inspectors came back for a second visit. The school hadn't changed, or at least hadn't changed enough. The headmaster's been removed. If they haven't changed enough by the time the third inspection comes around, the inspectors have the power to remove the entire governing body, change the foundation of the school, remove the Christian foundation, and bring in those who will teach that. That is already one man who's lost his job. It may well be a whole host of others. And it's a nice, leafy English county. Now, they're not being executed. They're not being imprisoned. But their careers are over. Uh, there, what will you meet? You'll meet perfectly pleasant, I imagine, very well-mannered, nice school inspectors who, if you bumped into in Tesco's, would be charming, let you go first in the queue, and all the rest. Not wicked, evil Satan worshippers sacrificing goats on the weekend. And yet we've got, to be, we've got to be realistic and we've got to see what Jesus sees. We've got to open our eyes to the whole spectrum. The emperor and the Roman Empire stood with Satan behind them, Jesus says, crushing the church. And we believe to think that that is a problem just left behind in the first century. I'm always a bit nervous of the kind of doom and gloom prophecies um, that, that easily come to preachers' lips. But there do seem to be signs, don't they, there, that the persecution is rising. And therefore, we, we do need to be aware that we may need to stand like Antipas, very unlikely, literally laying down our lives, very unlikely in England. But we may need to lose our careers or compromise. We may need to f um, be ostracized socially or compromised. And that's why it's good news that Jesus begins verse 13, I know, I know where you dwell. It's not just that Jesus knows the church. Remember in chapter 1 we saw how Jesus walks along the, amongst the, the candlesticks. He knows the church. But he knows your workplace too. Okay, I know the town where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He's with you at work. He's with you at school. He's with you at university. He's with you in the family that, that hates Christ. He knows none of your sacrifice will be wasted, will be missed. might be by others, but not by Jesus. I know, says Jesus, well done for holding fast, for staying strong. Well done for resisting that first attack, that outward attack. But there's a second attack. 
in verses 14 to 16. The second thing Jesus says, watch out for the subtle attack, the sneak attack, if you like, children. Verses 14 through 16. You've done well resisting the, 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 the charge of the enemy. Reject Jesus or die. Okay, we'll die. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you. Now, this is the secret war. Now, look what's happened. Verse 14. Uh, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicol- Nicolaitans. Now, we know nothing about these Nicolaitans. We know nothing explicitly about what they taught. They don't appear elsewhere in Scripture. They're not in Galatians or Romans or Corinthians or something. We don't know almost anything about them. But they're doing the same thing as Balaam did. The reference there is to a story in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Sure, you might remember the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers tells the story of the Israelites wandering through the desert towards the promised land. And as they go, they, 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 they get attacked by various different nations. But because God is with them, they always win. So the Amalekites attack and the Israelites win. The Ammonites attack, the Israelites win. And so a particular king, King Balak, uh, he's king of the, uh, the Midianites. And he realizes if he just does the full-on outward attack, that first type of war, come on chaps over the top, swords out, let's go and attack, he knows he's going to lose because God is on the Israelite side. Uh, if, if you'd like to come with me to the Old Testament, come with me all the way back to the book of Numbers. It's the fourth book of the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 22. Numbers 22, it's page 130, 130. Page 130, chapter 22 of Numbers. So Israel's defeated all these other kings. The Amorites have just gone. You see just beforehand, King Og defeated. Great name, isn't it, King Og? Verse 1, then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab. There's another country, Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, he's the king of the Moabites, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us. As the ox licks up the grass of the field, we are going to get smashed. God's people are going to be victorious. So what do the Moabites do? What does Balak decide to do? We won't walk all the way through the story, but he gets in a prophet, Balaam. Gets in this kind of holy man and says, curse. Why don't you curse the people of God for me? And Balaam tries to curse the people of God. He keeps going up the mountain to curse them. And just as he's about to say, may the Lord curse you and destroy you, the words that come out of his mouth are, may the Lord bless you. The Lord overrules. And so it looks like Israel has escaped. But Balaam, the prophet, and Balak, the king, they've got another trick up their sleeve. Just flick over the page to chapter 25. We've, we've gone all the way through the story of trying to curse and not working and trying to curse and not working. So what happens? Verse 1 of chapter 25. While Israel lived at Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel, it's God's people, yoked himself to Baal of Peor. 
Baal's another god, the god of the Midianites. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Direct attack's not going to work, Balak and Balaam realize. We'll try the cursing thing, but God frustrates it. God's word conquers against the word of Satan. Plan three, the sneak attack. Uh, what they do is get the prettiest Midianite girls, prettiest women, to go into the Israelite camp and say, hey, come with me. Come lie with me. Children's kind of like they're saying, why don't you come and marry us instead of your own women? And if you want to lie with me, you will, of course, need to worship my God too. But that's no big thing. You can keep Yahweh, keep that your God too. But just put Baal in as well. He's a lot of fun, by the way. Our God doesn't tell you who you can and can't sleep with. In fact, he quite encourages you to sleep with lots of people because if you sleep with lots of people, uh, he says he'll make the crops grow more. And Israel, who'd resisted in the battle, who'd resisted the curses, fell for it. And therefore, a plague from God struck them as they turned to idolatry. The battle didn't work. The outright attack didn't work. So instead, the sneak attack, the seduction. And that is exactly what's going on in Pergamum. Page 1029, if you've lost it, we're going to be there for the rest of our time. The Nicolaitans are using the same tactics as Balaam and Balak. Sex sells. Another pastor put it like this. Moab women in their beds led to Moab gods in their temples. If you can't persecute them, seduce them. And remember, this is going on in the church. The problem with Pergamum is they're kind of okay with it, the church in Pergamum. They've put up with this teaching. And so Jesus says, watch out. Watch out for satanic attack. This time involving compromise on sexual ethics and idolatry. The two go together all the time. It's something I think we need to speak about more often. We talked about it a little bit in our series on the Ten Commandments. It is very tempting for people who live in the UK to think we live in a non-religious culture. We know if we lived in Mecca that the dominant religion would be Islam. And we know if we were in parts of India that Hinduism might, might dominate. Other parts, maybe Sikhism. We know if we're in Israel, perhaps Judaism would dominate. But we look around our culture and think it's just nothing, secular. And we've begun to believe the lie that secular means neutral, nothing. But it's not true. All cultures, all countries, all people have a God. The Bible calls this idolatry. And in the UK at the moment, the, 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 the primary idol is what I called a few weeks ago meism. In other words, start with yourself and be true to yourself. You must follow your heart. He summarizes it as be yourself, free yourself, don't let anyone else control you, be that parent or church or school or university, free yourself from any constraints, and then express yourself, particularly sexually. Be yourself, free yourself, express yourself. That is the path to happiness. And that is pumped into our veins from the moment we open our eyes. TV, music, cinema, school, uni, it's all there. And the story of Balaam and Balak and the story of the 
church in Pergamum and the Nicolaitans tells us that is incredibly tightly linked to sexual immorality. That if you can either get people to compromise on their moral standards, they will then find a way to justify it and find some teaching that means it's okay to live as they're doing. Or if you can get them to turn to idols, the end result is always sexual immorality. It works both ways. And so you see it in the church nowadays, don't you? You'll find inside the church plenty of people who are willing to stand and preach and campaign and write and appear on the news and say Jesus does not care who you sleep with. If you love them, love is love. God is love. So follow your heart. And the church in Pergamon is saying, yeah, all right. All right. And we... We don't want to fight those battles because you think, oh, just a minute, if I fight that battle, I'm going to look so unloving. <laughs> Isn't it awful? Did Jesus ever explicitly say anything about homosexuality? So someone pops up on the news and says, no, you never did. First of all, just not true. <laughs> if you look at the language he uses, it's very obvious that he is saying, ex- talking explicitly about all sorts of sexual sins in the language he uses. But also the whole Bible is spoken by Jesus. Do you see, see how... Um, the letter is described in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Who is this letter written by? Well, according to verse 15, if you hear the letter, you're hearing the Spirit, the Holy Spirit speak. And we know from chapter 1 that Jesus is dictating the letter to John. So do you see that the circle? Jesus tells John what to write. John writes it down, and it is the Spirit's words that the church hear. There is no gap between the voice of the Spirit and the Bible. A compromised church has emerged in Pergamum. And again, this is where I remember my friend saying about, if only I could charge at a minotaur with a sword, I'd feel much happier. Okay, it feels more heroic, doesn't it, than being the guy at the school who gets sacked because you're not willing to teach that same-sex marriage is okay. It doesn't look very, doesn't look very heroic. In fact, you'll be painted as unloving, unchristlike. And she says, wake up. Wake up. The only way you can know what I want is by listening to my word. No other access to Jesus, is there, other than through his word. And the word is perfectly clear on all these things. It has been for generations, thousands of years. There's been no debate on the sort of things that suddenly there's turmoil over in the last half century or so. They're sobering words. But watch out for the sneak attack, says Jesus. And therefore respond as I do. Verse 16 and 17 as we wrap up. Respond as I do. Verse 16, therefore repent. There's always grace. Amazing thing. Jesus is patient. Maybe you've fallen into this this pattern of false teaching. Jesus says, maybe your church is compromised. Well, come back to me. That is the gospel, isn't it? We're all fallen short in so many ways. It might not be sexual, it might not be doctrinal for you, but one way or another, we are all needing grace and mercy. And Jesus stands at the door of all these churches and says, repent, come back to me. Repent. It's not try harder. It's come back for forgiveness. And then start following me. There's always grace. But there is warning there. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh, sorry, verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
At the beginning of each of these letters, Jesus is described in a, in a, in a way that's particularly suitable to the church situation. Uh, the church last week in Smyrna it is suffering martyrdom. Okay, they've been killed. And so Jesus is introduced in verse 8 as the one who is the first and last who died and came to life. I'm the one who's got the power over death, so don't worry if you're martyred. Here, the church is either scared of persecution or unwilling to kick out those who teach falsely on sex and other issues. And so Jesus comes as the one with a sword coming out of his mouth and says, if you won't discipline the church, if you won't cut out this kind of false teaching, I will do it. Um, Jesus is doing the church discipline. If we won't do it, Jesus will. And ultimately you see this. When churches compromise and become like the world, particularly, it's always sexual ethics. Okay, it's, it's not as if we're, we want to be making a big deal of sexual ethics, but it's just unavoidable. It was like that in numbers. <laughs> it's like that in our own day because we're so driven sexually. When you compromise... And when churches compromise, and particularly when denominations and, and congregations start just saying it's okay, then eventually Jesus just shuts the church down. Why is it that churches that are increasingly open in their teaching are in decline? We could say because they're not different enough from the world. I think that's true. You know, why would you bother going to church if basically the church is telling you exactly the same thing as TV? So, boy, stay in bed. That's true. But there's another reason. Jesus is shutting them down. I will war against... Who's he warring against? Against the church. That's a shock. He's not out there fighting the Romans. The baddies. It's those who have infiltrated the church. But he ends as ever on a note of grace. He who has an ear, let him hear. Stay strong, even when the world persecutes you. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Again, it's picture language. You'll feed on the bread of life. You will dwell eternally, satisfied with me. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Not quite sure, if I'm honest, (laughs) what that's about. Uh, White stones were sometimes used in trials. Black stone for guilty, white stone for, for innocent. It could be that. White stones were sometimes used as invitations could be an invitation uh, to the heavenly feast. Uh, the new name on it, is it a new name, your new name in heaven? As if you get a different name, I'm John T, but in heaven I'm called something else. Could be. But it could be Jesus' new name. As you, uh, If you just look across at chapter 3 and verse 12, uh, the re- reward there for the next church. The one who conquers, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. The new name could be that now you're no longer John T of this world, but you are, well, you are the one whose name, or rather who has stamped on him the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It may be, in other words, the new name of belonging to Jesus. Either way, we end up in the same places. I will welcome you home. However much you suffer now, I will welcome you home. So stay strong. Yes, you might be persecuted. But I've got so much more to offer. I have died. I have risen. I've forgiven you everything. All your stumblings, all your confusion. Stick with me and do not compromise. And you will stay safe. And you will arrive home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we 
uh, confess that there is a lot of Pergamum in us that we like to duck. Uh, when the bullets start flying, or we're tempted to run when, when the heat is turned up. Uh, we ask in your mercy that you would bless us and keep us humbly, graciously, but courageously holding on to the truth. Particularly pre- protect us from this error of the, the Nicolaitans, Balak and Balaam, this pattern we see so often in scripture that idolatry and sexual immorality are just hand in hand. Father, we don't want to look down on others. We have no place to stand to look down. But we do need your strength to keep going. So bless us. Uh, cause us to repent where we need to. And we pray that you would, on that last day, welcome us uh, to the banquet of your son. We entrust ourselves to you, therefore, in his name. Amen.